Good afternoon, Dr. Viviane Burby from Queen's University Belfast in Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. How are you today? I'm very good, thanks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm glad to hear it. We're here to talk about Brexit and the environment, which I understand is something you're going to be talking about at a UASIS lecture here in Brussels this evening, uh, but it's also part of a, a larger project you've been working on for a couple of years. Could you tell us some more about that project, please? Okay, so we started really in 2015, and just after the general election, when the pro when Cameron's promises to hold a government like a referendum if the Conservatives had a majority, well, it really came to bite us. And we're like, okay, so a referendum is going to happen, and no one really is ready, um, especially on the environment side. So I was working with colleagues uh, in Norwich and York. Then a lot of people have taken the European Union for granted. It was there. It was providing minimum level of you know level playing field, minimum level of regulation, and quite good governance, but no one was really defending it because over the last few years the EU had started to perhaps put a little less, less emphasis on the environment, more on you know, saving the euro, these kind of things. So people were quite critical of the EU and then they had to turn around and say, okay, can we actually, should we actually defend the EU and how do we talk about the referendum? So we started really looking at the referendum, preparing on, you know, answering questions such as what has the EU ever done for the UK's environment and vice versa um, and what does Brexit looks like for the environment starting really early on thinking of like your soft Brexit and hard Brexit which these words meant quite different things back in 2015-2016 to now and since then we've just been building a bigger bigger network of mostly UK based but EU wide Still academics working on what Brexit will mean for the environment, mostly in the UK again, mm -hmm. with a big devolved aspect, because of course, and we'll come back to this, I'm sure, environment is a devolved question in the UK. Mm -hmm. So we've got four environmental policies, not just one, um, and also on the EU side as well. Mm -hmm. So that project is funded by an external organisation, I presume? Yes, so well, yeah. um, I think lots of... Uh, uh, academic projects these days, we, we have a network, we have a website that we kind of have a bit of funding from different sources. Mm -hmm. A lot of it, you know, we have sometimes research projects and sometimes we don't and we kind of keep on doing a bit of the work, hoping for more research projects. Mm -hmm. But the biggest funding we've had would have been from the ESRC, mm -hmm. so kind of social science funding in the UK. A lot of it is called more like impact funding, so mm -hmm. it's not proper research funding, it's mm -hmm. It's more about making sure that social science research has an actual impact uh, on policy, on society. Gotcha. So it's now the 16th of January, which means we're just a couple of weeks away from what's expected to be Brexit Day. Mm -hmm. uh, what is the latest set of findings in terms of uh, your research into the likely impact of Brexit on the environment in the UK, first of all? Okay, so... It's very hard to have proper findings on something that, of course, is completely you know, uncertain. Now, we have a date of Brexit, but what we know then is that just after that, we have 11 months of transition period um, that currently the government is saying there's going to be no extension to that. So a lot, like we expect almost nothing to change for the next, you know, in 2020. The big question is what's happening in 2021 and onward. Um, so the first big question is that future UK-EU relationship. Mm -hmm. Will it be negotiated in time? Uh, negotiated and ratified and all of that in time? That's quite unlikely. 
Uh, and if not, then another extension or another type of New Deal Brexit, which would be a new trade deal Brexit. Uh, and there the impact would be quite different across the UK uh, because there's special provision for Northern Ireland mm. in the deal. Mm -hmm. So the environment in Northern Ireland could be perhaps less affected than in the rest of the UK. Um, but what we do know is that any form of Brexit anyway has a negative impact on the economy. Uh, and that usually economic crises tend to have, you know, a mixed impact on the environment, and, and it's a topic mm -hmm. you've, you've worked quite a bit on. So, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so on the one hand, yes, you produce less, so you might produce less greenhouse gases at the same time, but policies will be perhaps more focused on, you know, welfare and all this, and not so much on improving environmental standards. Mm -hmm. uh, because that's the big thing, is we know that the UK does not currently have the proper piece of environmental legislation in place to protect the environment after Brexit. Mm -hmm. And whether environmental legislation, agricultural legislation, fisheries, all that remain on the legislative agenda, if there's a big crisis, it's really, really unclear. Because you mentioned just now the idea there's quite a few obstacles between now and the end of 2020 in terms of getting uh, a deal. What are some of those obstacles or why should people be wondering if it's going to be difficult for this agreement to be made? Well. Because it takes a very long time to negotiate trade agreements. Um, and the agreement we want with the EU is not just a trade agreement. It's also an agreement on security cooperation and on general more like regional cooperation across the environment, science, you know, Erasmus, mm -hmm. these kind of things. So it's a gigantic endeavor. Um, the EU is actually quite good at negotiating trade deals. We've got lots of trade deals with part of the globe. But if you look at the Canada deal, like CETA, it took about seven to nine years. So doing all of that in 11 months, um, considering that you also have to ratify it in that period, or at least start that process, um, is very, very, very ambitious, mm -hmm. um, as in not very credible. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think lots of people in the UK think, but we are perfectly aligned right now. So, of course, that would be very easy. The problem is not alignment. The problem is what you do after. Mm -hmm. Usually, trade deals are negotiated to bring people together, closer. Mm -hmm. that This would be to negotiate a deal to allow the UK to move away from the EU. Mm. Um, and the UK, for now, is asking um, to basically keep all the rights and all the access it has as a member state while being able to do things that, as a member state, it couldn't do, mm -hmm. like sign different deals, but also, you know, change completely its legislation. So when we look in terms of the year ahead mm -hmm. and the large number of different topics you were just mentioning that need to be discussed and have an agreement made upon, um, we've seen in the election just a couple of months ago that the environment was being mentioned a fair bit, and there's a blog on the Brexit and Environment mm -hmm. website that looks at some of the... Um, discussions around the environment during the general election. Uh, do we have reason to think that the environment will be near the top of the agenda when it comes to the discussions taking place in 2020? I think we're, there's, a question, there's two questions there, two, two ways of answering mm -hmm. it. It's like, will it be at the top of the agenda in that UK-EU negotiation? And will it be at the top of the domestic legislation mm -hmm. agenda? Mm -hmm. It looks mm -hmm. like apparently there's a um, the new, like, new version of the agricultural bill has been published today. Uh, we're having as well the environmental bill, you know, that was called the lodestar mm -hmm. uh, in the Queen's speech that, you know, Boris Johnson put a lot of emphasis on it. So it looks like um, there's going to be continued push on these, which is very good news because 
these are big, big areas in which they were mostly Europeanized and also very devolved. So we have big gaps um, in what's going to happen for English legislation, mm. but also in how the four nations are going to work together on mm. these issues. Mm. And they need to be sorted before Brexit. Now, whether there's going to still be some environment in that UK-EU negotiation, I think it's very likely we're going to see some. Um, I don't know if you've been following what uh, Macron and some of the others have been saying on, on we... You know, no trade deal signed if the party is not compliant, like is not meeting its Paris targets mm -hmm. on climate change. So they're kind of really upping a bit the kind of green trade um, you know, discourse on the Brussels side. So I would assume that they're, especially with the UK being next door, um, the, one of the priorities is going to be level playing field. Mm -hmm especially on the environment and, and workers' rights as well. Tell us more about this level playing field idea, because it's something we keep hearing bandied about quite often, yeah. uh, and it's a really useful term to understand. So what does it mean in this context? Okay, so for me, level playing field is something that, it's a British concept, really. It's a British idea. Um, I never heard about it until I moved to the UK and, uh, you know, studying Europe um, in the UK context, because it's something that continental Europe, we just don't talk about, we don't mm -hmm. think of. That. But it's the whole idea that, you know, it's all about fair competition. Mm -hmm. It's about making sure that, uh, you know, your producer uh, in the UK has to meet the same kind of pollution, like has to make sure it doesn't pollute um, more than the producer in Belgium, that they have to meet the same kind of standards in terms of things they can throw in the water or reject in the atmosphere. Um, and so it's all about making sure that, you know, you cannot have kind of environmental dumping within European, within the, the EU. Um, and this underpins the whole idea that you cannot have free movement of goods, um, especially of goods, but also services to a certain extent, without some kind of, um, again, level playing field. So having the same rules for everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is, doesn't mean that it's... It's not an upper limit on mm -hmm. the ambition. It's about having a minimum standard of environmental protection mm -hmm. across the whole of the EU. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you're more ambitious, you can go further. Mm -hmm. And we've seen the UK actually on climate change being a bit more ambitious than the rest of the EU at some time. So it does happen. Um, and that, that level playing field is never perfect. Mm -hmm. We know that a big, big problem with environmental policy in the EU is lack of implementation. Um, no country is perfect on that. So we know that, that, but that's still the aim. Having that level playing field is still the aim. So it's rules of the game. That's a good way to understand it yeah. in general. Gotcha. So in terms of uh, looking ahead now, we've heard about how um, you mentioned the competition dimension that we maybe start to see in terms of the different uh, minimum threshold for uh, standards. And I think it was Michael Gove, you're going to be talking about this this evening, talked about having some kind of rivalry over emulation of yeah. uh, standards with each other. Can you tell us more about that competition and, and whether that narrative has changed since Michael Gove said it? Uh, yeah, so about 11 months ago, Michael Gove and Franz Timmermans, who's for, who was then... Um, first uh, vice president of the Juncker Commission, got into a bit of a Twitter spat around who was going to be more ambitious in terms of responding to Blue Planet 2 mm -hmm. and banning uh, single-use plastics. Um, because Michael Gove came up with a you know, project was saying basically, you know, thanks to Brexit, we're going to be able to ban single-use plastics. Um, and Franz Timmermans said, you know, but we are going to be the first to do it, actually. Mm -hmm. Our plan is more ambitious and we're going to be quicker. 
Now, both of these men were forgetting that actually Scotland was already getting there mm-hmm. uh, and has already banned a few, like, you know, I think, ear, like, um, ear burns, like plastic earbuds are already banned in Scotland since, uh, since the end of 2019. And so we were seeing that actually Scotland, who was both in the UK and in the EU, mm-hmm. could already, you know, actually use the fact that in the EU you can go over that minimum standard and was already forging ahead. Um, so that rival simulation, I think it's a concept that, you know, Michael Gove talked about more looking UK towards the EU, but it's also a lot of these things happening within the UK. Mm-hmm. We're seeing lots of very ambitious policy in Wales, for example, sometimes in Scotland as well, a bit less so in England and definitely less so in Northern Ireland. So this is something you said right at the start we're going to be talking about this evening in particular. There's going to be a hallmark of these discussions, the devolution, the different standards between the different nations of the UK. Why are we seeing those different patterns in terms of ambitiousness? You mentioned that Northern Ireland is perhaps uh, not jumping ahead at the moment, or England, but perhaps Scotland and Wales are taking more of a front foot approach. Uh, What explains this differentiation between the nations? Um, That's a complex question. (laughs) So... Some elements of answers would be that, um, I mean, similar to what you've seen uh, with how the European Union and the European Parliament became so good on on climate and the environment, it's because it was one of the rare areas in which they really had power. Mm -hmm. And with devolution, agriculture, the environment were one of like some of the first devolved areas. Um, And it's something that really, you know, it can be very local. So for Mm -hmm. the devolved government, it was actually very easy to develop something that was better suited to their own environment, and they could really put the stamp of the newly devolved administration on it. Um, So that's one of the reasons why we've seen quite a lot of difference, but it was quite a lot of emphasis put on these. Now, there's also party political differences, Mm -hmm. because we know that, I mean, for the first 10 years of devolution, you had Labour Party all around, and then you had some differences in parties. And... um, while the Conservatives have for a long time said, you know, they wanted to be the, the first government to leave the environment in a better place, blah, blah, blah. But we can see, though, that, you know, perhaps Welsh Labour or the SNP um, up in Scotland had perhaps actually at least more ambitious in some aspects, but it's different environmental agenda mm. because it was not the same party anymore. So has the environment um, got a reputation for being somewhat of a valence issue uh, across the nations, or, or does it depend on the exact issue that it we're does. talking about? Well, it depends. So the one I didn't mention was Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, now we we do know like Northern Ireland is a specific case of because of the troubles, because of you know, um, you know the lack of economic development in Northern Ireland for a long time was held back because of the troubles. So that meant that the government, when it came back, was really pushing for growth and mm-hmm. pushing for growth in Northern Ireland. Going for growth, the name of the strategy is a lot intense agri-industry, which has a pretty damaging impact on the environment. And now it's moving a lot into mining as well, mining for gold um, into some of the most pristine part of the UK. So you have a bit of an extractivist kind of agenda in Northern Ireland that is quite different from what you're seeing in the rest of the UK. Uh, You also have climate skeptics Mm -hmm. in Northern Ireland to Mm -hmm. greater degrees, the DUP. Many members of the Democratic Unionist parties are quite, at least many of the elected members, are not necessarily convinced that climate change is real or that climate change is as important as it is. Um, no, the new um, secretary and uh, like minister for the environment and agriculture, 
in Northern Ireland as a DUP uh, minister. And in the past, he, you know, he has endorsed creationist belief. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to have interesting questions of mm-hmm. how, what's that's going to mean for Northern Ireland. Now, for the rest of the UK, in general, the environment has been seen as something that every party, like, it's more of a kind of positive competition issue, mm-hmm. that it's more about outdoing each other. And we've seen it with the last general election, where the big thing was, how many trees are you going to plant? Mm-hmm. I'm going to plant even more trees. Um, and there we could see that actually there was so many, so much promises mm-hmm. for English parties, parties mainly standing in England, mm-hmm. uh, promising so many trees. But actually, where the trees are being planted in the UK right now is mostly in Scotland. Scotland mm-hmm. is really way ahead of England in terms of tree planting. I didn't know that at all. Um, so when we have various issues like the environment suddenly rise a bit more towards the top of the agenda, we have seen that before as well in the mid-2000s. Uh, and so it's not necessarily the case, I shouldn't think, that we can assume that the environment is going to continue to have the same status as it did recently. Although, on the other hand, with the declaration of a climate emergency in the UK, no less, yeah. uh, which has perhaps placed the UK uh, internationally in, in terms of being maybe more of a... a pioneer rather mm-hmm. than uh, the laggard that its status suggests it is in certain other environmental areas. Yep. Um, should we think then that when it comes to climate change, the EU will be weaker without the UK? Is that the narrative that we're seeing um, behind the scenes? So that's one of the big fear we had. Um, I think in general, looking at the environment and Brexit um, from the UK looking into the EU, the impression I had was it's going to be much easier to find another member state to stand up mm-hmm. and be the laggard instead of the UK. But mm-hmm. when you have to be the leader instead of the UK, mm-hmm. that takes much more effort. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, you know, the climate strikes, all of this, I mean, in general, European use and I mean, the way, you know, the, the green wave that we're seeing in mm-hmm. quite a few European parties showing that actually climate leadership, bottom up climate leadership in many ways is there and is potentially there to stay as well. If you see in terms of looking at young people across Europe, mm-hmm. climate change as an issue that is really drawing them into mm-hmm. politics. Mm-hmm. Um, Just on that, for example, in terms of young people, we've seen across the UK, again, yeah. devolution is a key dimension here, votes for 16 has caught mm-hmm. on uh, in all the nations apart from England. So yeah. then we have this differentiation again. But climate change does seem to be a particularly significant issue for young people, which means it should carry on being at the top of the agenda for the next few years to come. Perhaps. It should, but I think what we've, we, we've seen, I mean, in general, the EU kept on working on climate change during the economic crisis, during the Eurozone crisis, but kind of dropped most of the other environmental issues down. Um, and so I think it's really important to think when you're talking about emergency, yes, there's mm-hmm. a climate emergency, mm-hmm. but biodiversity as well, mm-hmm. you know, and this, this and the impact, um, how they interact is super important. So it's more, the, the question is more going to be how, I think the environment in general will stay high on the agenda, mm-hmm. but what part of the environment is going mm-hmm. to stay high, how the what's relevant is going to be defined or not is going to be very important. And here we're saying we're hearing a lot about the first environmental bill, the first agricultural bill in a generation. Mm-hmm. This is not common. In the rest of the Europe, in the rest of Europe, you have environmental bills every few years. Mm-hmm. Every government has at least one bill on the environment uh, or on agriculture. In many ways, Westminster, because these were Europeanized matters, said, well, we'll just stick to implementing the directives. Because there was such a backlash against what was called gold plating. Mm-hmm. So the idea that there was going to be EU rules, but that they were also that 
you know, people in Whitehall would add more things on them and would make it harder for businesses, uh, create, you know, unfair barriers to trade, um, that in many ways, you know, environmental policy in the UK was held back by that fear of adding to additional burden mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on... Green yeah. tape. Yeah, green mm-hmm. tape. Uh, and we've seen in the recent general election there's a reference to the red tape challenge, suggesting mm-hmm. that uh, the Conservative Party in particular is championing the idea, Sajid Javid is championing the idea that uh, red tape should not be, or green tape should not be uh, expanded over the year to come. Does that uh, suggest to us then that in the event of a, a no-deal Brexit, uh, we could see a, see a significant uh, differentiation in terms of legislation between the UK and the EU quite rapidly? I think, I mean, even with a deal, mm-hmm. uh, because most trade deals, I mean, even if the EU is likely to go even further, but mm-hmm. most trade deals, you know, you, as long as you have like strong ambition mm-hmm. and some mechanism to deliver it, um, the UK can still keep that while mm-hmm. really removing a lot of the rules. Um, and what's important to realise is that the UK has been calling again, calling out EU red tape, but general red tape for a long time. With a different conservative government, we had one regulation in, one regulation mm-hmm. out okay. in 2011, up to one in, two out, and then in 2016, one in, three out. Mm-hmm. But all of that was on the non-EU part of the regulations, because they, you could not cut EU regulations without the agreement of the Commission and mm-hmm. the other member states. So then that means now, after Brexit, you know, all the rest has already been cut down quite a lot. If the government really wants to show we are cutting red tape, the only place where it can still cut is really in what's going to be retained EU law. Mm-hmm. And that's where a department like DEFRA, where 70 to 80% of its legislation is based on the EU, they were able to cut only in that 20, 30% before. Mm-hmm. Now all the rest is open. Mm-hmm. And so which kind of policy areas have been mooted behind the scenes as being more vulnerable? I think that that keeps on changing. Mm-hmm. I mean, in general, I think lots of people say, you know, waste, no one really cares about waste, but that's not actually true anymore. I mean, I think people, the fact that, you know, you've got different recycling rules in different parts of the UK is being talked more and more. Um, I think basically um, air pollution is one of the big ones because we know the UK, like many other member states, is really struggling to um, comply with current EU standards, even though these standards are too low compared to the, what the World Health Organization mm-hmm. tells us we should have. Um, so, you know, it's it's perhaps not going to be overt, let's just cut the rules completely. Mm-hmm. It will be something a bit more uh, underhanded, mm-hmm. in a way, where we're seeing that, for example, for, for water, uh, there's talks of moving from... Um, good status of water, a uh, good biological status of water, which is what the Water Framework Directive disca- uh, describes as what we should aim for. And England is really not on track to meet this, mm-hmm. but like by far. And now um, the environmental plans are to call it a more close to a natural state. Mm-hmm. Now, if you change the way you measure, if you change the name of your measurement anyway, or if you choose to replace measuring one pesticide to m- measuring another, you can appear to meet the targets, but actually you've done very little. And so that's, I think the that's concern more that many environmental groups have been having ever since the election and beforehand, mm-hmm. that there's going to be um, a change in the labelling of certain conditions rather than the actual um, uh, protection of environmental standards as they currently exist. And that's, I mean, we're seeing this already because it's all about the money you mm-hmm. put on the table. Uh, 
agencies in the UK, especially in England, uh, Natural England, the environmental agency, have seen their budget cut by so much mm -hmm. that you're seeing most protected sites in England are not actually, you know, inspected mm -hmm. to see that whether they're still, you know, there's still a species that mm -hmm. we should be protecting there or anything like that because there's just so very few people actually still working in these institutions. Mm -hmm. And indeed, a little bit of research that I did with Peter Eckersley, uh, looking into uh, English cities, suggested that when it comes to environmental issues that are protected, there are often things that people can perceive more immediately uh, under the, the aegis of environmental protection, such as even uh, cigarette sales mm -hmm. to young people, rather than uh, surrounding environmental issues that maybe take longer to realise, or more particularly climate change, which is such a transboundary issue. So these cuts at the local level do seem to be having uh, more long-term impacts that's actually quite difficult to measure at yeah. the moment. You were mentioning just now uh, the history of one in, one out in terms mm -hmm. of policies when there have been cuts, and to, or rather the, the desire to not increase uh, green or red tape. Uh, but we're hearing some similar narratives in Europe at the moment as well. So what, what's the situation in the EU in terms of environmental protection? We've heard the references to the Green New Deal. Could you tell us a bit more about what's going on over here in Brussels? Well, I think, I mean, it's still very early days in Brussels because we have a new European Commission um, that is starting. Um, and so, you know, that first year, we're mostly, we, we still need to see quite a lot of how the big, beautiful promises are actually going to pan out. Um, the big test, I'd say, would be a COP26 in Glasgow in December for lots of the climate mm -hmm. issues, but the Green New Deal in general. Can the EU be, you know, credible mm -hmm. then? Um but yes, yeah, so we are seeing this whole idea of cutting EU red tape that was pushed by the UK, by Netherlands, by the Netherlands, Sweden as well, quite a bit, and Germany as well. I mean, so few member states were pushing for it, but it was still seen as really as a British agenda for many people. Um, and yet, in a way, and that's kind of the irony of the thing, is that the UK, in the UK, you hear about how little influence the UK has had over Brussels and how, you know, we were told what to do. But the UK has really shaped the way lots of people in Brussels think and talk about environmental policy. And this whole idea of regulatory burdens, mm -hmm. administrative burdens, has now been accepted mm -hmm. as we need to make sure that, yes, while we pursue um, high environmental ambition, we need to make this in a way that is the least costly for businesses. And perhaps we need to hold back on some, not like, you know, have some clear priority and not do anything else. Uh, outside of the priorities to make it easy for the business. Uh, whether that's a good idea or not, it's uh, it's very problematic because, of course, who decides... Red tape is a very political term, right? Um, who decides what's a necessary or an unnecessary mm -hmm. regulatory burden mm -hmm. is super important in the yeah, years to come. So when it comes to COP26 in Glasgow this coming November, mm -hmm. uh, we saw five years ago that the Paris Conference was a very important uh, occasion for the UNFCCC, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And a key part of that was France was the host and France was part of the EU. And so the EU had a de facto key role in, in the way that the conference took place. Uh, whereas this time round, uh, the UK will be on the very final weeks uh, of the uh, period of transition. Um, Sorry, yes, the transition yeah. year, this year, 2020, I'm losing track of the years already here, this year, 2020. And so um, is there reason to think the relationship between the UK and the EU and in the context of the UNFCCC is going to be different this time around? I think so. I mean, we know that sometimes having the EU as host 
you know, doesn't necessarily pan out. Mm-hmm. Copenhagen. Yeah. Um, so is Glasgow going to be more of a Copenhagen than a Paris? We'll mm-hmm. see. Uh, but I think if if the EU and the UK have managed the impossible feat of getting a future relationship agreed, mm-hmm. even if, you know, not fully signed, mm-hmm. not fully ratified, but just they are happy, both sides are happy with the direction of travel, mm-hmm. then I think they'll be able to stand together strong mm-hmm. in Glasgow. If we are three, four weeks before a no-trade-deal Brexit, mm-hmm. or when, or if during the you know, Glasgow COP you still have back and forth between the government and the commission, it's going to be very hard to provide like a united front. Mm-hmm. Gosh, so a busy year in 2020 yeah. is still to come. Um, turning to uh, the years beyond that, mm-hmm. uh, then, um, obviously it's very difficult to predict how things are looking. Um, we've got the situation in Northern Ireland where there's the likelihood of, or the requirements to have over four years of votes and mm-hmm. this kind of thing. So, um, whilst I'm not asking you to make any predictions, are there certain areas where Brexit and the environment are likely to have more long term impacts and some that are maybe more uh, short term? Um, so we've been talking about the 2020 dimension here, but uh, when it comes to 2021, perhaps, what are we going to start thinking about? Okay, so I think, I mean, if we're thinking from the Northern Irish perspective, um, there's going to be, there's lots of questions around having, in essence, a single market on the island of Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have an integrated electricity market. And that's going to be very important mm-hmm. in terms of keeping that forward. Um, question of new interconnectors as well between you know Ireland and France, and so really having uh, Northern Ireland being on that power grid more than dependent, because currently Ireland and Northern Ireland, so Northern Ireland depends on Ireland, and Ireland depends on the UK mm-hmm. a lot for lots of the electricity. Um, so that's going to be very important. So all the rules and regulation around energy. Um, are going to be areas where Northern Ireland will want to stay quite close uh, with the Republic of Ireland. The other big area would be everything around every food. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing that any kind of barriers to trade with the, on, on this um, issue um, is going to mean relocation of businesses, which we're already seeing because it used to be, you know, supply chains would cross multiple times the border. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, fear of having, you know, paperwork to be filled and all that mm-hmm. means that it's not practical. So we're already seeing a reorganization of businesses so that it can either produce everything in Northern Ireland or everything in Ireland, mm-hmm. depending on the market. So we're going to see potentially more of that. And that can have really important consequences for the local environment mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, pollution from, uh, you know, agri-food, production in general, so nitrates and all of the kind of water pollution uh, in rural areas. Now, more generally, I think what we're seeing is, are we actually going to see from 2021 onward divergence across the UK mm-hmm. on in terms of environmental policy? And there we can see, you know, it's, you can tell a good news story around Wales and Scotland being very ambitious, but these are tiny parts compared mm-hmm. to England. Mm-hmm. If England starts um, becoming less ambitious, it's a bigger market. Mm-hmm. Will the others manage to keep, you know, hold and keep mm-hmm. on being more ambitious if their big market, England, especially mm-hmm. if they've got less access to the EU market, start slashing mm-hmm. their regulations? So it's that question of a Delaware effect or a California effect. Completely. Are they to the yeah. bottom or are they to the top? We just don't know how that's going to be shaping out yeah. just yet. 
So uh, we're running towards the end of our time now. If uh, our listeners wanted to read some more uh, research from the Brexit and Environment Project, where could we find out some more pieces of information? Everything on our website, brexitenvironment.co.uk, also on Twitter, at BrexitEnv. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Dr Vivian Gravi from the Queen's University in Belfast in Northern Ireland. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I'm to talk to you too. Thank you. I look forward to tonight's discussion.